You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. When someone injures or harms themselves on purpose rather than by accident, it's called self-harm. Whether it's overdosing, self-poisoning, hitting, cutting or burning oneself, pulling hair, picking skin or self-strangulation, it's always a sign of something being seriously wrong. To gain an understanding on self-harm, I spoke to Dr John Goldin. He's from the Child and Adolescent Faculty at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. John, to start with, why do people self-harm? Well, there's a range of reasons why people self-harm. They're obviously normally feeling very upset, very emotional and distressed when they do it. Some people describe their self-harm as a kind of way of releasing overwhelming emotions. It can be a kind of communication of distress to people around them. Some people plan it in advance, others do it in a kind of more impulsive way on the spur of the moment. Some people self-harm only once or twice, other people do it regularly. Unfortunately, once you start doing it regularly, it can become a kind of habit or even a sort of verging on an addiction and it can become very hard to stop, which obviously one wants to avoid at all costs if one can. People are more likely to self-harm if they feel that other people are not listening to them, that other people don't understand their difficulties if they're kind of feeling hopeless, isolated or alone. Some people also talk about, you know, feeling out of control of many aspects of their life. Some people do it in quite a sort of regimented routine way. So they feel that they have a sense of power or control that they don't have normally. And some people also who self-harm may have alcohol or drug use problems. I and mean, that's not always the case, but that can make you sort of disinhibited in a way and more likely to self-harm. I would also add that some people who self-harm have very low self-esteem and they might feel that they deserve to be punished in some way. So cutting themselves sort of is giving them what they feel they deserve. Also, there's some people who feel, you know, who maybe been abused in the past or had traumatic experiences who feel very kind of numb. And I've heard people describe to me that they somehow feel more alive when they cut themselves or hurt themselves. And some people describe it as a kind of relief of tension or a temporary distraction from their distress. I know that's quite a long answer, but there's a lot of different reasons why someone might self-harm. And I think one of the key things is really to understand it as a significant communication of distress. And they need to be listened to and supported in the right kind of way. It's not a sort of helpful coping mechanism. I hope I haven't in any way come across as suggesting that it is. It's what we psychiatrists call a sort of maladaptive coping mechanism. And in the short term, some people might feel it helps them temporarily with their distress but it really doesn't help in, in the long term and is a very worrying thing to be doing, so people need to seek help appropriately. Is self-harming more prevalent in certain age groups than others? Well, we're hearing a lot about self-harm happening in young people, and clinically, certainly in the last six months or so, sadly, I've seen increasing numbers of teenagers. It does seem to happen more often in young people compared with adults, for sure, more common in girls than boys on the whole. The research data is not 100% conclusive, and it is changing in terms of prevalence, but around 1 in 10 young people approximately will self-harm at some point, although I think that's probably an underestimate because the research is based on people who go to hospital or their GP after harming themselves, and self-harm is often a very secretive activity that the person does on their own and doesn't tell anyone else. So sadly, the, the actual prevalence is probably significantly more than 1 in 10 young people. It's more common in prisoners, so people who are feeling kind of desperate in prison might self-harm. Asylum seekers, again, who feel there may be no way out of their situation. Veterans of the armed forces, people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender. I mean, there have been various studies that these groups, sadly, who may be suffering prejudice and discrimination, may be more likely to self-harm. 
For people that are friends or family and suspect that someone is going through self-harming, how do we approach this? What do we do? Well, I think it's it's really upsetting to be close to someone who self-harms, but there are things that people can do as, as families, friends, as professionals. I think one of the most important things is to listen, provide space for listening in a kind of non-judgmental, non-critical way. Often anxiety or stress or tension is very high around people who are self-harming and trying to be sort of calm and listen thoughtfully is important. Try and talk to the person when they feel like they might be self-harming. It's often a very good idea to help create a kind of safety plan for young people who are prone to self-harming so that they know that when they feel like they might be about to self-harm, they know there's, for example, a key person such as their mother, father, sibling, friend, teacher, who they can speak to rather than self-harm. So you need people around you who are available and who understand something about the context. I think it's important for young people, but also for their, their family members and, and professionals who may be looking after them and so on, to find out more about self-harm. And there is a, a leaflet on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website on self-harm, and that also talks about other resources that are out there. So, for example, Childline is an excellent charity, Young Minds, the Samaritans. These are all organizations that one can contact 24-7. And there's also a charity called the National Self-Harm Network, which is worth checking out. I also often recommend to young people, because people often get resources online, and I recommend MindEd, which is from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, that has information for young people and, and parents and professionals on self-harm and other mental health difficulties. There's a website called Good Thinking UK. Young Minds I've already mentioned. There's Big White Wall. I'm, I'm just mentioning a few resources that are out there, but there is quite a lot of helpful stuff that is available online. So it's, it's so important that young people find help and that adults or carers offer to go with a young person to see someone such as their GP, helping them see that their self-harm requires support and understanding and that it's not something that is secret or shameful. What does the treatment pathway look like for someone who self-harms? Well, there are different options. I think, as I say, one of the first key things is for the young person to talk to a trusted adult, someone that they feel uh, will listen to them and support them. The GP would be one of the first ports of call. I, I'm very conscious that GPs are very often, you know, extremely busy and so on. But but the GP is the gateway to CAMS. CAMS is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. I'm also very conscious that many CAMS services around the country are very stretched, and to some extent, their thresholds can be too high, depending on what part of the country you live in and what the resources are for your local CAMS. Nationally, CAMS do not have adequate resources to treat the number of young people with mental health difficulties. But we do suggest that. A young person would go to their GP, be referred on to CAMS, and ideally see someone without too much of a wait in the CAMS service, such as a psychologist or a psychiatrist or another professional who can listen to them and support them with specific resources and, and therapeutic input. If it's more of an emergency or more of an acute situation, the young person should go to A&E. Some people might have taken overdose, for example, even as little as the six paracetamol can be toxic to your liver and can be very dangerous. Paracetamol is a particularly dangerous drug. So if you have taken an overdose or if there's any kind of acute risk, you should be taken to A&E, call ambulance 999 if necessary, and they will review you, do blood tests as needed check you out and normally if you're a young person who's who's self-harmed or taken an overdose you'll get admitted to a paediatric ward so you can have a full thorough assessment usually the following day by what's called a paediatric liaison a psychiatrist or mental health practitioner who will do a thorough assessment of you 
and then pass you on to the right team locally, such as your CAM service. That's the ideal pathway. I know it doesn't always happen exactly like that, but that's certainly what should happen. And there is definitely help available in the kind of ways that I've outlined. And given the fact that our services are so stretched, one needs to have patience. One does sadly need to have patience, and this is really a big problem. We know that it's really, really important that the right resources are there, but I and and others from the Royal College of Psychiatrists and other organisations are very much lobbying the government to improve the CAM services that are out there in terms of resources and in terms of workforce. There's just not enough people working in the field and and more people need to be trained to work with young people who do self-harm. The other thing I might just quickly mention is the issue about social media companies because Young people are looking at Instagram and Snapchat more and more and other similar companies. And there have been too many images of people who self-harm on these platforms. They can actually encourage other young people to self-harm. So, for example, if you Google self-harm, sometimes the algorithms take you to unhelpful sites. They might take you to helpful sites where you can get counselling and support and appropriate resources, but often they'll take you to unhelpful sites where you might encounter other people who are encouraging you to self-harm or you know graphic images of self-harm which is really totally unhelpful and that's where the government's online harms bill which is currently I think in a committee stage needs to be urgently brought forward to help address these issues. And finally John if you are able to reach out and get the help and support that you need it can have a positive outcome can't it? Absolutely yes no I mean one of the reasons I became a child psychiatrist is because in many cases one can be very optimistic about the prognosis for people that one works with so young people have development on their side they've got their whole lives ahead of them and you know usually we can support them in a way that they absolutely do improve and recover and hopefully if the young person is self-harming at a point in their lives when they're going through a particularly stressful time they can get the kind of help that they need and they, and they absolutely can recover and it, it really doesn't need to of long-term difficulty for them. As I say, it's often a kind of communication of distress. And if that distress is heard and listened to and they get the right support, then absolutely they can recover and, and normally do. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. In the UK today, there are around half a million children and young people with brain conditions that result in complex medical, educational and social support needs. Tracy Elliott is head of research at the charity Cerebra. Our emphasis is on supporting families of children with rare and multiple or profound needs. And this is a very underfunded area of research. A lot of research doesn't necessarily meet the priorities and needs of the people that are being researched, if you like. So our aim is to bridge that gap between research and family experience. By engaging with families, we know what the issues are that they find most pressing. And we work with researchers then to ensure that the research they do addresses those specific needs. On the flip side of that, by engaging with researchers, we help to ensure that the evidence that they're producing from their research gets put into a form that families can use. I don't know if you've ever tried reading an academic research paper, but it's not the sort of thing a family is going to pick up when they're facing a crisis. So we kind of translational service, if you like. We try and take that academic language and put it in a way that families can understand, find accessible and actually use to make informed decisions. From a research perspective, Tracy, what is Cerebra's funding focus? Over the last 
20 years, we've invested over £10 million in research in this area. It's small numbers by big research grants, but it actually makes a big difference. There's a shortage of professors looking at rare conditions because in their foundation years, grants to get them started weren't necessarily available. So our thinking is let's support those young early career researchers and help them keep in this particular area of research, which is largely underfunded. If we can get those careers established in that area, we get them up to professor status, then they are able to apply for those much bigger grants, which extends the whole area of research, extends the expertise in this area. It's an approach that has proved successful in creating a whole new generation of researchers, as one of them, Dr Joe Moss, now one of the directors of the newly formed Cerebra Network for Neurodevelopment Disorders, explains. Initially, the support enabled us to establish the Cerebra Centre, which was led and directed by Professor Chris Oliver. And over the years, many, many students, researchers, clinicians have come through that Cerebra Centre and been trained through the Cerebra Centre way back from 2008. So we have all worked together in partnership. We've been trained through that support from Cerebra and we are now leading the Cerebra network and taking it forward as we sort of step into a new phase of research and development. So Joe, what are the aims and objectives of the new Cerebra network for neurodevelopment disorders? There are two core aims really. The first is around carrying out high quality, very detailed research that improves our understanding of these conditions that have been very much neglected and underrepresented in research and in clinical services. Translating that research into improved awareness in the community, improved access to resources, developing materials and information for families and professionals and developing training that will then support these children and their families in their day-to-day lives. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.